pitch. Stand by playback. And now, I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Republic, it's in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We do it every single day, have for more than 26 years. We're going to keep doing it as long as I'm behind this mic. I want to mention this. Earlier this year, Montana became the first state to ban TikTok. Now, I don't like TikTok. I've never had TikTok on any of my devices. I don't have it in my home. No member of my family has it in my home. And now a group of 18 state attorneys general have backed the effort of Montana as the first state to ban TikTok from Montana. I thought we'd talk about that with Jeff Berman, who is the founder and CEO of Tusk, which is the free speech focused Internet browser as a possible replacement of Google or any of the other browsers out there. Jeff, welcome back. Thanks, Lars. It's great to be on your show. Thank you for having me. I think you probably intuited from our previous conversations that I'm not the kind of guy who likes bans on things. Uh, I'd rather let the marketplace decide. But in this case, I don't like TikTok because if the Chinese have figured out how to have an app that sits there and provides some entertainment, I think TikTok is kind of thin, although I'll hear people who say, oh, I get all my news from TikTok. And I'll think, well, that's that's not exactly the kind of source I'd go to, but okay. But understand that it sits there and acts as an information gathering device for the Chinese communist government, which I think is is absolutely evil. And, and they're doing it largely without the knowledge of the people who have TikTok on their phones and their pads. Uh, should we should we follow Montana's lead and and become a, a country that says TikTok is not welcome? Your persona non grata in America. I I think so. I was very disappointed with the turnaround in Congress when they all talked about TikTok was not good for our country. And as soon as the I love this, as soon as the the I'll say the Democrats or the progressives found out that a lot of their fans are on and how they're going to get the people uh, are on TikTok. Uh, Well, quickly did that die away so that they didn't put a ban nationally, but 18 of the states, as you pointed out, decided that this is not good for our country and certainly not good for our constituents. And, you know, the the problem is with TikTok is they're subverting uh, a pitch to you so that you might not even know it, but obviously you're, they're trying to make China a wonderful place and a place that you want to admire, and therefore you want to change your culture to their culture. Yeah, and I think it does. I mean, I'm concerned enough about America-based companies and America-oriented companies like Google and others that try to twist and turn the information that I might get. So I, I go to other places like Tusk. Uh, or Brave, or a number of other browsers, because I don't like the fact that Google seems to be, in particular, seems to be twisting its algorithm so that when I search for something, they say, oh, this is what you want to see, Lars. We're not going to show you the stuff you're really looking for. That that kind of power to mold people, mold public opinion, and mold people's votes should not be in the hands of a private company, I don't think. 
Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's, uh, you know, we're, we, it was funny. I was thinking about World War II, and I'm a, uh, an avid fan of, of what happened in World War II. I mean, a terrible war, but interesting. Yeah. Uh, and and the, fa- the fact that, you know, Tokyo Rose, who uh, and remember we had, I forget his name, somebody, Baghdadi, they were so outrageous of what they said that no one could believe that. Therefore, it made it humorous. on Tokyo Rose that they were winning the war when clearly they weren't or whatever else they were saying. But with TikTok, it's much more subtle and, and very smart. I mean, you've got to give the Chinese a lot of credit the way they have not only infiltrated our country with TikTok, but think of all the universities they have paid to get into and are oh, teaching with them or learning institutes a lot. and things like that. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and and not only that, but then stealing a lot of our IP. Uh, they're very good at this, and and I think it's time we. You know, I'm not. A, I'm a free speech guy. I believe in freedom of speech, but not to the detriment of our country and the subversion of our country. If you, I mean, if every ad they put up, we put, you know, something like, hey, they're trying to subvert our country. Maybe people would wake up to that, but they don't. Most people don't even recognize it. You know, most people are oblivious to politics, and they're just out to have a good time. and And the majority of people, they don't even pay attention until weeks before an election. You know what they should do. Well, and Jeff, I'm talking to Jeff Berman, who is founder and CEO of Tusk, which is a free speech focused internet browser that doesn't suffer from some of the other flaws that even American browsers have, but. I'll I'll get people to say to me, what's your show about? It's political, isn't it? And I said, well, I guess it is. Can you name something in America that's not political? And they'll think for a second. I'll say, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, food, groceries, uh, gasoline, uh, you know, well, how you make your living, what you eat for dinner. Uh, how many of those things are not political right now in America? And And most of the time people say, you're right. Everything seems to be political because our government has inserted itself in everything. And then if you ask yourself, has the Chinese government been uh, been uh, pretty good about free speech among its own, you know, one and a half billion people? And they say, no, of course not. I said, well, do you think they'll be any better with free speech of Americans if they think they can guide it? And and I think the answer is no. They're going to be just as nasty to us, maybe worse. Yeah, no, remember, they're. Their goal is to marginalize us and then somehow take us over. Obviously, they want to do it without guns, without shooting guns, although they're building themselves an army and navy that is obviously competitive with us. But that's not their main goal. You know, They have a very long outlook of how to change America. And to a certain degree, I would say they've been somewhat successful, at least for schools and colleges and some of the some of the crazy things that we think I, I don't I I believe they like those not because they believe in those but they they realize what rancor it it causes transgenderism things like that they're just loving that we're tearing each other apart yeah they are and and if you think about in I don't follow basketball that closely but the NBA is a big proud American tradition and yet when the Chinese say jump the NBA these days says how high and why 
because China has a middle class of 400 million people, and our entire population isn't 400 million people. Which marketplace do you think that the NBA cares more about? So when the Chinese say, we'd like movies made without uh, any negative uh, references to communist China, but you can make negative references to other institutions, you say, gee, they're already guiding what we see and maybe to some extent what we eat and everything else. Jeff, thanks for what you do at Tusk. We appreciate your time. Great to be with you, Lars. Thanks for the conversation. You bet. That's Jeff Berman, who is CEO of Tusk. You ought to check it out. Free speech-focused Internet browser, because you understand, if you're using a browser to look up information, and I do it all day long, about 12 hours a day, at the end of the day, if the browser ends up guiding you to the information that Google wants you to see instead of the information you're actually trying to find, then that's a problem in a free society. And you have to have an informed electorate or a republic like America's cannot survive. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Think of him as your concealed carry. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Here's a question you're not going to hear framed up by the mainstream media. Is America's transgender bandwagon veering towards some violence? I thought we'd talk about that with our friend Bob Barr, former member of Congress and former CIA analyst. And Bob, in the last few weeks, I've been telling my, uh, you know, my friends on the radio who listen to this show that a surprising number of the mass shootings and even, I guess, less uh, major events of violence in America have been carried out by transgender individuals, except that most of the media refuses to talk about that aspect. They'll tell you everything else about the victim of a crime. They'll tell you almost everything about the alleged perpetrator of a crime, except for the fact that they're transgender. And I think there's a pattern to be seen there. I've, I've actually got a list that I've gone through of some of the mass shootings in the last five years that involved identified transgender individuals, most recently the mass shooting in Nashville, Tennessee. And then in my own neck of the woods in Portland on Easter morning, a cab driver was stabbed to death by a person who is identified as transgender. Except if you look up the story online, you won't see any mention of that, as though the media's got a conspiracy of silence about that stuff. It certainly appears to be the case. I mean, we've seen this uh, over the course of uh, recent history with with other factors or other characteristics, uh, the identification of which doesn't fit the the media's or the uh, the liberal uh, worldview. And I think that is what we're seeing with uh, the transgendered movement, which, uh, you know, as you've probably seen and I've seen also in just the last couple of years since this has taken taken hold, uh, it it has moved very slowly but surely now into the violent uh, arena. And I don't think it's uh, going to get uh, better before it gets worse, to be honest with you. 
Well, and Bob, I get some heat because one of the reasons I brought it up is people say, well, why is that relevant to an act of violence committed by a person that the person is transgender? And I said, well, we're told by the people who advocate for the transgender that if we don't accommodate them in their desires, uh, either with medicine or with surgery or with other kinds of social acceptance, they might just commit suicide. If somebody's on the verge of suicide or that close that, that anything might tip them over, that suggests to me mental difficulties of some kind. I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but if somebody said this person's very close, don't you know be careful around them because if you say the wrong thing, they might commit suicide. I say, well, that that's indicative of a mental problem. And then I know that some of the studies of people who have had the surgery and have done the transition and everything else, um, they're almost untouchable in public now because, you know, God forbid you should criticize somebody who's gone transgender, but even some of those people who've been accommodated will end up taking their own lives. And I find that tragic and sad. Uh, I don't believe in suicide. I, I think we should dissuade people from suicide. But if you're suicidal on both sides of that equation, both before you're accommodated and after you're accommodated, that suggests a mental problem. If that person or a group of people who have that characteristic go out and do something that I think you can define as insane, the murder of your fellow citizens, uh, then then you say, well, they had mental problems. And, and even some of the most recent uh, killers have had mental problems. And you say, well, we should be compassionate, but we have to protect people. So... If the media is going to ignore this and if the, you know, the powers that be, the folks in, in official positions are going to ignore that characteristic and not speak to it, then we're in real trouble, aren't we? We are in real trouble uh, in so many ways. And, uh, and you speak to them and your listeners do uh, on a regular basis. The problem, another problem with the, the transgender movement is it is being pushed into the mainstream you know we've uh, seen and uh, talked of course about uh this uh, uh this person dylan mulvaney uh being uh, being raised uh, to uh, to a level uh, that used to be uh, afforded uh hollywood megastars simply because uh, he goes on tv and goes on uh you know tiktok or whatever the social media uh vehicle of the day is uh and the way I see it, makes a fool of himself. I mean, dances around in a, in a dress and or dresses up like uh, Audrey Hepburn and uh, drinks beer in a uh, in a tub full of suds or whatnot. And we're supposed to say, "Oh, isn't this wonderful?" Rather than say, "Now wait a minute, this is this is idiotic. Why is this being glorified? It doesn't help any movement, uh, the transgender movement, by." portraying and allowing to be portrayed transgender people as clowns. I, I don't get why the movement itself, if indeed the movement is designed to simply protect transgender people, to help them to avoid having them subject to discrimination, how these portrayals help that movement. No, and in fact, I think it's insulting to women because this person is not a woman. This person is pretending to be a woman as though you can replace a woman by just taking a man and putting him in uh, fem feminine clothing and having him behave in a certain way. And I saw an, a, a tweet 
uh, today from a young lady that I follow. I don't know her, but she said, today I celebrate 21,000 days of being a woman. I've been pregnant once, miscarried once. I'm a daughter, sister, aunt. I've endured 468 menstrual cycles. I've endured the surgical removal of one ovary. No man can say he's done these things because you cannot change your gender. I keep wondering when women and some of the groups who claim to represent them, like NOW, which seems to have disappeared from the planet, aren't standing up and saying, you can't replace a woman with a man in makeup and lipstick. And when those few things do occur, as you've described, where a woman does fight back against, uh, for example, being called she or her, then that person, even though they may be extremely liberal and very supportive of a transgender movement, for example, they are labeled as transphobic or homophobic. I mean, the language makes no sense. The actions of these people makes no sense. And the entire movement is straying far from the avowed goal of helping transgender people. Well, and the point you made about Dylan Mulvaney being used to sell beer or sell whatever it is they're selling, but when you when you look at past celebrity endorsers, you understand that, I mean, I've been in that business for almost 50 years, where you say, why would somebody buy, you know, a particular kind of beer or a particular kind of shaving razor or a particular kind of automobile? And you say, because so-and-so drives it. And even though you might not consciously say it, you say, I want to be like so-and-so. I want to be like whoever that person is. You know, I want to be like Tim Tebow. You say, okay, well, then I'm going to drink the kind of beer he drinks. I may wear the kind of watch he you know, he wears. I may, I may want to drive the same kind of vehicle. Or at least I'll think better of that product because it's used by somebody I want to be like. Is that, you know, with, with transgender being, what, two-thirds of 1% of the U.S. population at most, are there that many Americans who say, yeah, I want to be just like Dylan Mulvaney? It's hard for me to imagine that. It, it is, and I don't think it's the case. When you mention some of the celebrities, for example, that used to be role models uh, for products, and it was a positive way. It conjured up a positive image for people to buy a particular product. Uh, Jack Daniels uh, being, uh, being advertised by... Uh, Frank Sinatra or a box of Wheaties uh, having Muhammad Ali on the cover, a positive role model. Now, I mean, I don't I don't see maybe I'm missing something. Anything as a positive role model in a man dressing up as a woman and dancing around in a sports bra. Maybe I'm missing something, but it sure seems to me that it is a very strange way for a legitimate product, whether it is a sports attire company or an alcoholic beverage company, uh, to gain by this sort of weird advertising. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, usually, Bob, the people we have the least respect for is anybody who tries to fake who they really are. That's Bob Barr, former member of Congress, former CIA analyst. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.
things you wish you could say. More with Lars. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. You might remember during the campaign for president, the last one, we're right in the middle of the next one now, you heard Joe Biden really criticize Donald Trump. And why? Because of what's called the family separation policy. What that meant is that when illegal aliens came across our border, most of them across our southern border, many times those illegal alien adults were uh, uh, were accompanied by children. Now, they would often claim that the children belonged to them, and then we'd find out later on that the children had no family connection to the adults at all. They were simply being trafficked across the border. But one thing that has been clear all the way back to the Obama-Biden administration is that you can't house detainees who are caught at the border housing adults with children. Nobody thinks that's appropriate, so that was not done. And that policy continued on into Trump. And then Joe Biden, forgetting that he was part of the policy to begin with, back when he was working as vice president, decided to criticize it. I thought we'd talk about that with Matt O'Brien, who is one of the directors of investigations at the Immigration Reform Law Institute and a former immigration judge. Your Honor, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much. So tell me this, uh, the family separation policies. Joe Biden tried to make them sound like they belong to Donald Trump. Who do they actually belong to? Well, they actually belong to law enforcement. If you stop and think about it, any time that an adult is arrested in the United States with a child, the adult and the child are arrested. If a police officer stops somebody for DUI on a street, uh, they're going to separate the children because, first of all, you can't take the child into custody with the adult. And second of all, if the adult is presenting a danger to the child, then you need to make sure that they're separated. So this whole notion that this somehow was a... Uh, uh, an exercise in cruelty that the Trump administration cooked up is, is nothing but myth. Yeah, and in fact, the uh, kids in cages and all that, it, uh, the media never talked about kids in cages under Obama. They talked about it a lot under Trump. And then they immediately thought, uh, I guess, forgot about the story when Joe Biden came into office, even after he had attacked Trump for being the author of that. And, and so what's going on now when kids and adults come across the border? How are they handled? Well, here's the thing. The Biden administration is trying to keep a lid on this. So contacts that we have at places like ICE and CBP have indicated that the Biden administration is doing just as much of this, if not more, than the Trump administration, uh, because it's what you have to do when you're dealing with adults and children in that kind of a dangerous law enforcement environment. So we filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get the numbers of the family units that have been separated since the Biden administration took office. And they don't want to give the data to us. Now, you'd, you'd wonder, I mean, my first question as a reporter, when somebody says uh, they want to make a claim that they're doing it right, but they won't give you the numbers, is to suspect that they know that if you actually could get access to the numbers, it would uh, it would belie whatever it was that they were telling you, that it would it would call them out as liars. Do you think that's true in this case? Uh, yeah, I do. That That is what we think is happening Um you know, certainly there have been a large number of people, uh, adults and children, waved into the U.S. by this administration. But to the extent that they're actually still doing enforcement action on the border and taking people with felony convictions into custody, things of that nature, they have to be separating adults from children. It would be utterly irresponsible to do anything but. Um, but it always gives me cause for concern uh, when an administration 
any administration, but particularly one that claims to be the most transparent American government in history, doesn't want to give data to us. No, and it bothers me as well. The other thing that's bothered me, Your Honor, is that you're not still a judge, but I don't know if you have the title or not, but I'll, I'll, I'll do deference to it anyway. But it's always by all 50 states have a mandatory reporter law, which says if you're in a position of responsibility, like a cop or a doctor or a judge, and you even suspect that a child has been abused, that you're required to report that to law enforcement. I suspect that's not happening at the border when children come across with adults, and at least some of them turn out not to be the children of the adults have no family connection whatsoever whatsoever and may in fact be trafficked shouldn't somebody be reporting that or or calling them out as you're a mandatory reporter if you just saw somebody drag this kid across the desert and then across a river through a dangerous crossing oftentimes without enough food or water or shelter or anything else that would seem like a casebook definition of abuse uh, it is and it's what's concerning a lot of the border patrol agents that work along the border uh, is that they are being pulled from their normal duties of patrolling the border, looking for criminals, looking for terrorists, looking for drugs being trafficked, and they're being put on hospital transports, babysitting duty, uh, everything from changing diapers to handing out meals to the massive number of people coming over the border currently. What they feel they're missing in this is that in a lot of situations, these children are being used as props to get across the border. Fake family members. Uh, we all saw a while back some news footage of uh, cartel members dropping children over the border wall in order to distract the Border Patrol. So the agents that we have spoken to have said that they simply don't have the capacity with everything that they're being asked to do to focus on the trafficking and the crimes the way that they did previously. And that should alarm everyone in the U.S. because this is not a country where people want to see children and, for that matter, adult women being trafficked by anyone. And the abuses that go on by the traffickers are just unbelievable. It's horrific. Well, and in fact, uh, I'm talking to Matt O'Brien, who's now at the Immigration Reform Law Institute, and he's a former immigration judge. Uh, in fact, haven't they lost track of about 85,000 kids at least that we know of? And how does the Biden administration explain you let these people in, they included children, they may or may not have been the children of the adults they were with, and you just let them go into the country. Where are they now? And the Biden administration says, we don't know. Well, and it's even worse than that, because a lot of the children that they don't know about were children who were ostensibly taken into custody by the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, unaccompanied alien children and children who are separated from adults at the border when they're found not to be the children of the people they were traveling with, are supposed to be placed in the care of HHS. And then HHS has foster homes and other contractors who take care of the children. But because they got overwhelmed by the Biden administration's border policies, HHS turned a lot of these people over to whatever adults showed up and claimed to be uh, the children's relatives. So there's somewhere between 80 to 85,000 children that they don't have any idea where they are. And in a lot of cases, some of those children were released to adults who were not their actual family members. There were a couple of them that were found in really unfortunate circumstances. There was one 14-year-old who was found in the Midwest uh, working the night shift, cleaning equipment in a slaughterhouse. And so this is how little respect that the Biden administration has for these kids and these families.
And when they find a circumstance like that, do they trace back to the, I assume that when you come to pick up a kid and you say, I'm here to pick up Jose, that, that they find out who you are and get some identification. Does the government ever go back and follow through and say, you appear to have committed fraud. You took this kid and he turns up in a slaughterhouse. We think you've committed a crime. Does that happen? Uh, it used to. It doesn't so much anymore because I think that the Biden administration is interested in getting as many people over the border as quickly as it possibly can. But the fact is, those investigations should go on. The Trump administration was using DNA testing uh, to match the children to the families. And when they found out that there were abuses going on, charges were laid and those cases were pursued in the federal courts. Unbelievable. Matt, thanks very much for what you do at IRLI, and we appreciate your time. Thank you. That is former immigration judge Matt O'Brien, now director of investigations at the Immigration Reform Law Institute. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Always glad to get your phone calls and your emails. If you want to dial into the best conversation in talk journalism, 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And believe me, a lot of people say, well, whoever's answering this? No, I answer all my email. My email doesn't go to anybody but me. As much as I respect my producers, I do not farm out the answers to my email to somebody else. And if you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you can find that at Lars Larson Show and also on our website at LarsLarson.com. I want you to consider kind of a strange question, but I've got some data to back it up. What would the world look like if the COVID vaccines had simply not arrived at all? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment, and then I'm going to tell you this. There is data from an organization I don't entirely trust called the World Health Organization. Why? Because two years ago in January, they said there is no... Two years ago in January, January 2020, the WHO, in the pocket of the Chinese Communist government in Beijing, said there is no sign that COVID spreads from human to human, that that kind of transmission doesn't happen. On the 14th of freaking January, while a lot of us were watching... The disease spread through Wuhan, China. And we say, well, it's not spreading from human to human. Why are so many people in Wuhan getting it? And, of course, I anticipated, my wife and I anticipated, because we were watching the reports from overseas. Uh, We said, it's coming here. I mean, there's no way in the world this does not escape China. The fact is, we could have had many fewer cases in the United States. But then again, that's water under the bridge. Donald Trump shutting down the airlines and being ridiculed by the left. Oh, he's scared of all this. No, he actually did something very, uh, very, very sensible on the about 17 days later on the 30th of January. But let's take you forward to today from the World Health Organization in Haiti, which is a notoriously poor country, a country that has suffered from corruption, not just their own corruption, but the corruption of various non-governmental organizations, and even the Clinton Foundation and Hillary and Bill themselves. I mean, Haiti has had its share of tough breaks. 
They've had hurricanes. They've had earthquakes. But in Haiti, only 837 people have died since the pandemic began. Now, you say, okay, that's sad. It's 800 lives. Why is that important? Do you know what the vaccination rate for this country of 11.5 million? So they have a population bigger than many American states, smaller than a few others. I mean, California is, what, around 35 or 40 million. And here's Haiti at 11 million. And they've had 837 deaths. They have a vaccination rate of 1.4%. Holy cow. 98.6% of the population is not vaccinated. And yet, a total of 837 deaths. In Haiti, from the 3rd of January 2020 to the 7th of July of this year, there have been a grand total of 31,703 confirmed cases of COVID and 837 deaths. You know that 31,000 confirmed cases? That would have been a good number in many American states. And 837 deaths compared to a million people dying in the United States. As of the 24th of June, a total of 342,724 vaccine doses have been administered. In contrast to countries that vaccinated the majority of their population, Haiti has survived the impacts of COVID-19. Israel does not have a high rate of full vaccination. They're at 66%. But the country eagerly embraced all proposed boosters, four of them. Despite all that, Israel has seen one of the highest COVID-19 death rates on record this year. The number of coronavirus patients in serious condition in Israel hit 140 on Friday. That is nearly a 70% rise since last week. Now, Jim Hoft collects all this data. He's very good. We haven't talked to him on the show recently, but I want you to consider that. It's really tough to argue with the numbers, and it makes you wonder if the vaccines had never arrived, if people had simply taken whatever precautions they could take, up your vitamin D intake, take uh, uh, a number of other uh, vitamins and supplements, and no vaccination at all. And remember, in Haiti, we're not talking about a, a population that has a high level of medical care available to it. We're not talking about a population that has easy access routinely to doctors or hospitals or anything else. We're not talking about a country that has a high level, let's say, of just sanitation, plain old, plain vanilla sanitation, toilets, running water, things like that. This is a country that has a gigantic number of problems. And yet somehow their total Total number of cases since the beginning of the pandemic, two and a half years ago, 31,703. Total number of deaths, 800, just over 800. Meanwhile, Israel at 66% vaccination has had a much higher rate of both death and total cases. Now, I want you to add to that another data point that came to us this week, and that is about, about kids. Because last week, the Biden administration was practically beside itself, saying, We have to get the vaccines into little kids, ages six months to five years. And, I mean, excuse me for for being a bit cynical about this. Is this about getting the vaccine companies to get paid for the vaccine they made? Because, you know, we've talked on this show before about the fact that a great many doses of vaccine have ended up being wasted. We actually ran some sound from one of the big vaccine makers 
uh, the CEO of the company, complaining at a conference that they were having to throw out 20 or 30 million doses of vaccine because they couldn't find anybody who wanted to take it and administer it. Well, children under the age of five are getting vaccinated against COVID-19 at a slower rate than all other age groups. Now, I suspect this is because a lot of parents have said, my child is not exposed to a lot of people or places where my child could end up getting COVID. The chance of my child getting COVID is very low. The chance of it having any really bad effects on your child is very low. Consider this, that when the Biden administration finally got the FDA to say, okay, we'll okay the vaccine for kids from ages six months to five years. Do you know how many have taken the vaccine? About 2%. This is in the United States, 2%. Now, for kids ages 5 to 11, 15% of the kids ages 5 to 11 have received the vaccine in the first three weeks after it was authorized. I just want you to consider that this suggests not only a gigantic distrust by parents, but perhaps parents who are making a sensible decision. The vaccine comes with risks. So does catching COVID. You weigh the risks and you make the best decision for your kids. That's sensible. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls, which I'll do in just a moment. At 866-HEY-LARS. I happen to be pro-life myself, so I'll make that disclosure in the interest. I always disclose if I've got a dog in the fight. But it's, it seems amazing to me that Democrats and liberals constantly have double standards. And then they have those subjects where they say they feel strongly about something. In the case of Democrats in this uh, situation, it is they feel strongly about choice, by which they mean it's a euphemism for killing babies. Uh, they want to, they want you to have the choice. I don't. I don't. I don't favor that. But Kamala Harris, who's vice president and who could any day now be president of the United States, depending on how things go for Joe. She might even be the candidate for the Democrat Party if they don't have a better candidate by summer of next year. But she gets asked about abortion. Now, you would think that if she feels strongly about this subject, that she'd have the guts to actually say where she stands on that subject. But lately, she has not had the courage to actually say what she actually believes when it comes to abortion. So I wanted to get Evie Osmond on, who is vice president of communications at the Susan B. Anthony Foundation and Pro-Life America. Uh, Ms. Osmond, welcome to the program. Lars, thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. 
Well, I'm glad to have you here, and I just always tell my audience where I stand on an issue so they don't say, well, you didn't tell us where you're coming from, but it amazes me. that, And I think, frankly, liberals are cowards because if you say, I truly believe in this, whatever this happens to be, you know, buying all of our energy supplies from China or killing babies, if you actually believe in that, you insist on believing in cockamamie stuff like that, then uh, go ahead. But it sounds like Kamala Harris... Uh, wants to have her cake and eat it, too. She wants to say, I believe in all this stuff, but would you mind telling my audience what happened when she got confronted on Face the Nation when she was asked, well, how far are you willing to go? Absolutely, Lars. They asked her, and she couldn't list a single limit, a single week, a single limit, a single boundary that she would place on abortion at all. And then you saw the anchor talk about Roe v. Wade, which Kamala Harris said, oh, yes, I'm for that. But when you saw the anchor list the certain weeks in which she thought, incorrectly, but she thought Roe v. Wade stood for, you saw Kamala recoil and say, oh, no, 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 no. So, no, we're not getting any answers, any limits. I was shocked a few months ago when I was digging into this. I thought to myself, surely Surely there's Democrats that will list one limit. And I can tell you, after months of looking into this, I am still in search of a top-level Democrat who will give me a single limit that they will support. But they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too, because what they're doing is they're saying uh, no limits at all that they will support. But then they're also saying in the same breath, oh, well, we don't support all trimester abortions. But that's not true. There are already seven states in this country, plus D.C., that have no limits. And if we look at the legislation that they're pushing already, the federal legislation that's going to be further than Roe v. Wade, it's called the WHDA, yep, the Women's Health Protection Act, the so-called, it goes further than Roe. It lists no limits. It says viability with no definition. But what it actually does, Lars, is it defines that the abortion provider gets to decide how and when and how long, and they don't put any limits or weeks on there. Well, and and then that never works in, I mean, in medicine. I might walk into my doctor and say, hey, I'd like you to prescribe this for me. And the doctor says, well, I'm not allowed under the law to give it to you because you're too old, you're too young, or, you know, lots and lots of limits when it comes to medicine. I know the Democrats want to put killing babies under the rubric of medicine. I don't think it's part of medicine or health care, and I don't think it protects women very well when they're unborn women because they don't get protected at all. But Is it just the case that Kamala Harris, former attorney general of one of the biggest states in America, doesn't understand what the so-called Women's Health Protection Act actually calls for? No, no, not at all. I guarantee she knows exactly what's going on. She's not the only one. We saw Karine Jean-Pierre. We saw Jen Psaki. I mean, we have a video of just endless amounts of Democrats that will either say they're for no limits at all. They'll come right out and say it or they'll play kind of the cloak and dagger politics. But the thing that, that is really just awful that they lie about is they also say, well, even if it if there are no limits, late term abortions don't exist. But that is such a lie. You can look at Planned Parenthood's former research arm Guttmacher. I mean, they're pro-abortion all the way. And they even say there's 63,000 abortions that happen in America after 15 weeks. So we know and we see all trimester abortion centers popping up around the country. And so given all that, are they just holding back from saying it because they understand that while they say they're officially in favor of it, they understand the optics of actually letting the words come out of your mouth sound so bad? I mix that up, you know, 
optics and sound. But I mean, the point is that you say, I believe in that. I mean, if somebody comes to me on, say, guns, well, I'm a Second Amendment supporter. And they say, do you think children should be able to buy buy guns? And I said, well, you know, at a certain age, yes. Uh, if I had my druthers, I'd say at a certain age, you should be able to buy a shotgun, which has been the law for a long time. How about pistols? Well, maybe 21 would be okay. But I'm willing to talk about the limits that I would put on. Felons can't own firearms. If somebody said to me, Lars, would you be willing to let nonviolent felons, like somebody who's written a check, you know, a bad check, which can be a felony, uh, can they, should they be able to buy a gun? I said, if the people of that state or if the Congress is willing to pass a law, yeah, I wouldn't have a problem with nonviolent felonies, uh, felons being in, you know, allowed to buy a gun. It's not the law now, but I, I'd be okay with that. But I'm willing to talk about the limits that I would put on the things I believe in. These people are just flat-out cowards, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the real why, Lars, if, if we want to get technical here, I mean, NARAL, Planned Parenthood. Oh, they won't even call uh, it abortion anymore. In fact, NARAL used to stand for National Abortion Rights Action League. But if you ask them now, what does it stand for? They say it's just NARAL. They, they don't want to say the mm-hmm. A word, do they? Right. No, they're multi-million dollar donors to the Democrats. And so now what we're seeing is uh, is just it's so egregious in which the Democrats are now captured by the activist voices or the loudest voices in their party. I mean, I'm reading stuff from NARAL and Planned Parenthood and others in which they're saying, oh, you know, we have to go as far as possible. There cannot be any limits. They're not shy about that. But what is interesting to me is the influence that they have on the Democrats and they, the Democrats themselves are playing cloak and dagger politics because they can read a poll just like you and I, and they know that Americans overall, even after 50 years of Roe, which allowed for late-term abortions, Americans are compassionate people. And poll after poll shows, which you won't hear from the corporate media, show that Americans want significant limits on abortion, at least somewhere around the first trimester, 12 to 15 weeks. Yep, they sure do. And even if we adopted that, we'd still be considered vastly liberal compared to most of Europe. Ms. Osmond, thanks for the work you do at Susan B. Anthony and Pro-Life America. We appreciate your time. Thank you. That's E.V. Osmond with us. We'll have her back. And at some point, somebody, some enterprising reporter who wants to make a name for himself or herself is going to ask Kamala Harris. So the Women's Health Protection Act, that actually allows late-term and up-to-the-last-second abortions on unborn children. Do you favor that and get a solid answer out of her? You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Investment in Talk Radio. And it's free. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know that opiate uh, overdoses and opiate addiction, major problem for America. Over 100,000 dead from overdoses last year. This year is likely to be similar, if not greater. 
than that number. So the question is, how do you fight back against that and still treat intractable pain in patients? I thought we'd put that question to Dr. Henry Miller, our buddy who is the physician, molecular biologist, and senior fellow at the Pacific Research Institute. You can read what he writes at henrymillermd.org. Doc, welcome back. Always good to be with you, Lars. So I've heard from so many people that if you went back, say, 40 years ago, you'd find people having major surgery and doctors wouldn't give them much of anything in the way of pain. They'd say, take some ibuprofen and and work your way through it. And then came an era where they started handing out opiates a lot more liberally, especially some of the newer ones like OxyContin that had time release and all that. And now we've tightened that down dramatically to the point where even people with really tough pain problems can't get a hold of the legit the drugs that they legitimately need how do we find a happy medium and how do we do that and address the overdose and uh, addiction problem at the same time well this is a multifaceted problem and it requires a multifaceted response so as you say some of it is the practice of medicine uh surgeons especially like to give out opiates because they work They're very, very potent pain relievers, and uh, patients who get them are not going to call the surgeon's office uh, two days later and say, my my incision hurts, my bones hurt, and so on. Uh, On average, and this is amazing, uh, they give out uh, as many as 80 pills, uh, 80 opiate pills, on discharge from a modestly um, major operation. So that's about, um, uh, that's more than 10 days worth. That's about two weeks worth. Uh, and uh, it's not um, unusual for half of these to remain unused and in medicine cabinets and amenable to abuse uh, down the road by the patient or a patient's family member. So, so theft so, and, and, th- and resale and things like that. Exactly. So we need we need smarter, more parsimonious uh, prescribing for one thing. Um, we also need uh, passage of some new legislation that's been proposed in the House and Senate called the No Pain Act, uh, which would remove uh, disincentives for uh, surgeons and other docs to prescribe non-opioid uh, alternatives uh, or to perform them. Uh, things like um, nerve blocks or uh, long-acting anesthetics during uh, simple uh, surgical procedures. Do we uh, not have that now? Uh, well, we do. We do have them, but uh, Medicare, in particular, uh, discriminates against those and prefers to uh, have surgeons dispense small amounts of, of opiates. So, no, but uh, why do they? Do, do, is there a, a reason why Medicare doesn't like that particular solution to, to pain? Does the government need, a, need a, an explanation for bad policies? <laughs> no, no. You and I talk about that all the time. <laughs> of course we do. So the the answer is I don't know what the original uh, justification was for that, but but also. Uh, for relatively minor pain, uh, the NSAIDs, the non-steroidal uh, uh, drugs like uh, ibuprofen and naproxen, work pretty well. Um, the, the other thing is we, we need to get better information out to docs uh, that's more accurate. 
Um, I, I don't think we discussed this. Uh, in the last administration, uh, the Surgeon General was an anesthesiologist named Jerome Lucas. And for a while, he was touting a, an article that purported to show that intravenous acetaminophen, that's intravenous Tylenol, really? is as, as, as good a, is as, wait, wait, wait for the punchline, <laughs> is as good a, uh, an anesthetic as morphine. Now, any medical student who has completed uh, a surgical rotation knows that that is total hogwash. And uh, I was one of those people who ridiculed that that article, which, by the way, was in the Tehran Journal of Medicine. Oh, my God. And finally, Lucas uh, deleted it. But uh, so, you know, if the U.S. Surgeon General is touting this nonsense, you, you can certainly understand that a busy surgeon... Uh, a busy dermatologist who does surgery is is not going to keep up. So well, we need to do better. At, and, uh, and I guess God. I can understand where the doctors in some cases might say, here's 80 pills and uh, dispose of the ones that you don't use or whatever. And uh, because, Doc, from a practical st- people forget that when your life intersects with the medical care system, it's so inconvenient and not just inconvenient, um, but let's say uh, I haven't had any of these ha- cases happen in my when my wife's had to be in for serious surgery or whatever. They g- usually give her, you know, a certain amount of pain relief. And she tends to say, I'm not taking any of that stuff unless I'm absolutely desperate because she's afraid of, of, of getting addicted or having those kind of problems. But I can understand why a doctor might do that because of the patient has the surgery. He gives them a small amount of medicine and says, call me up if, if you run any problems. So you run out of pills and the pain's still there, and you call and try to get a doctor's appointment with a doctor, oh, yeah, we can get to you in about three, four weeks, you know, and it's going to cost you another couple of hundred dollars to come see the doctor, even if it's covered by insurance. Those kind of practical problems, when the doctor says, I'm just going to give you enough to, to you know, carry all the way through, uh, no matter what you run into, and leave it up to the patient to decide how much they need, that's the problem, or that's the, the thing that could create problems with some people, but if you say, I'm only going to give you a little bit and then just come back in, but how do you get back in to see a doctor these days? Wait times are crazy. You're absolutely right. And you've just described a couple more facets of the multifaceted problem. Uh, there isn't a good answer, but we chip away at the margins. And, and the No Pain Act is one to at, at least uh, get docs to, uh, to prescribe more of these non-opioid alternatives. As long as they work as well, because because that's that's the concern. Absolutely, and you know, if if patients experience a little bit of pain uh, after a procedure or after a fall or or whatever, that's not the end of the world. And maybe in the cosmic scheme of things, the overall scheme of things, we're better off that way than with uh, the amount of abuse well, of opioids that we see, have currently. See, I'm with you on that, Doc, because, again, I mean, have I had medical treatment? Yeah. Are there times it hurts? I'm going to the dentist tomorrow morning. But you know, they're going to tell me, well, we don't have to numb your mouth to put your new crown on. I said, great. I, I don't want it if I don't have to have it. Uh, and, and yet I know there are going to be people listening saying, you don't understand how bad this is, Lars. But... When I hear about friends who had, you know, say their father had their his chest cracked 40 years ago, and the doctor said, take some ibuprofen, tough, tough through it, because the doctor knows at some point, you know, even when the opiates run out, you're going to have to, you're going to have to get through what residual pain there is. And unfortunately, 
Doc, am I right in saying there are maybe a cohort in America that thinks, no, I should be, I should have a pain-free life, and I shouldn't just have the heavy-duty pain meds to take the real edge off the pain for the first couple of days, and then when it still aches for the next couple of weeks, you say, okay, I'll work my way through it. Yeah, that would be you're, the you're adult way. You're right. You're absolutely right, but not every doc is willing to sit down and have this kind of conversation with a patient. And, you know, especially surgeons, there is such a thing as the surgical mentality, unfortunately. Oh, you mean the one where the difference between God and a surgeon is that the uh, is that God doesn't think he's a surgeon, but the surgeons <laughs> think they're God? That's right. I, I, you know, and I, I have surgeon friends, but I say, you know what? There's, I mean, when you tell somebody, here's a scalpel, you get to cut into a human being, and you have to be right every single time with every single cut you make. When you put that kind of pressure on somebody, you can see why they might think they're a deity, although they're not. Dr. Henry Miller's writing can be found at henrymillermd.org. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Lars Larson Show. transmit disease through the radio trust me you don't want what he has more with lars larson you're listening to the best of the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you but i've been looking forward to talking about this for a while zusha ellenson is with me reporter for the wall street journal and co-author of a brand new book american gun story the true story of the ar-15 zusha welcome to the program Oh, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Lars. Well, thank you for that. I, I got to tell you, though, uh, I always try to tell my audience, I say, if I if I dog in the fight on a particular subject, a bias, I'm going to confess it to them to be completely transparent. I own AR-15s. I love shooting the gun. I think it's, mm-hmm. a, fair, it's a very well-crafted uh, piece of equipment. It's also, I mean, if you need this as an additional incentive to own one, liberals are scared to death of it because of the way the gun looks, even though it doesn't function any differently than other guns that shoot the same bullet out of a barrel at the same speed and with the same impact when it reaches the target. But the ones that scare the liberals, uh, for whatever reason, uh, just seem seem to get them all wound up. Nancy Pelosi and that whole crowd. Got you, got you. When did you first get your first AR? I'm curious. My first AR, it had to be at least a decade ago, and and mm-hmm. I and I have maybe half a dozen of them right now. But the the point is, they're they're a great gun, and they're they're actually kind of a fun gun to introduce. And I want you to talk about the book, though. But they're a fun gun to introduce people to guns with because if you say hey, come shoot this 300 Winchester mag, uh, you know, <laughs> rifle, and you say, eh, but but hold the gun real tight to your shoulder, it's still going to hurt, whereas the AR-15, AR-15 at least still reminds me of shooting an air gun uh, because of that well, recoil that's, spring yeah. that's inside of it. But why don't, you, why don't you tell the story, because you and your co-author tell the entire story of this rifle that has so, been so maligned by the left for the last 20 years or so. 
That's absolutely right. And what you're saying there is key to our story. It's a gun that's incredibly light and easy to shoot. And so we went back to the very beginning of this story, which was the inventor, this guy, Eugene Stoner. Now, he's a really interesting character, and we got unprecedented access to his life. His family gave us long interviews for the first time. We got documents about his life and what he thought about the gun. Let me just paint a little picture. He was a Marine veteran. He had no college education, no backgrounds in firearms design. And he was a very gentle guy, actually. You know, he didn't like to swear. When he was upset, he would say, boy, that frosts me. He never spanked his kids. And all he did was imagine ways to improve guns. He was fascinated by the engineering behind guns. From the age of, like, five, he was making little pipe bombs and rockets. And he had this little cannon that he once pointed at a neighbor's house, and his dad had to tell him not to open fire. He's just been fascinated with this from day one. His family described to us how they'd be out to dinner and he'd be sketching designs on tablecloths. His wife would say, stop writing you know, gun designs on the tablecloth. <laughs> and he would say, it's okay, it'll wash out, it'll wash out. Um, but what's really interesting is that because he had no sort of um, indoctrination into gun design by you know the dogmas of the day, he was able to come up with ideas that were so out of the box that he created a very futuristic gun. I mean, now everyone knows the AR, 20 million people have them. But back then, this thing was like, you know, the iPhone to a flip phone. And let, let me tell you a little bit how he got there. One of the first things he did was he was working in the aircraft industry, making lots of parts out of aluminum, right? And at yep. the time, most rifles were made out of heavy wood and steel. You know, for centuries, gun makers been making rifles out of heavy wood and steel. But he thought... Why not use aluminum? It's this very strong metal that's a third the weight of steel. And he made the receiver. You know what part that is. And your readers, yep. your listeners the only one that well. has a serial number on it. Yep. Exactly. So it's this really important heavy piece. He decided, why not, why not make that out of aluminum? And that was his first real big breakthrough. And his next big breakthrough was, you know, this famous gas system that, you know, ejects the spent cartridges and loads the next round. And we have these great stories. He, he's coming up with this gas system, and the first prototypes are pretty crude, and they're just blowing hot gas into his face. And he's like, ah, this is never going to work. Uh, but he perfects it, and it, it becomes, I mean, just this incredible revolution in firearms. Zusha Ellenson is my guest. He writes for the Wall Street Journal. He's a co-author, along with Cameron McWhorter, of a new book called American Gun Story, the true story of the AR-15. Um, you, you said that He'd been in the service, he'd served his country, and he carried an M1 Garand, right? And those things weigh about, what, twice as much as, as the average AR? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So he was in, in World War II. He was shipped off to the Philippines where he worked on big weaponry on aircraft, and all he did was tinker with guns in the military. And he carried an M1, and he kept looking at that gun. He kept thinking, how can I improve this? That thing weighs about 9.5, 10, 10 pounds unloaded. And the early versions of the AR-15 that he came up with literally weighed about five pounds, a little more unloaded. So you're right, about half the weight, which is just remarkable. And how did he do that? You know, he made it out of aluminum. And then the little startup he worked at, Armalite, you know, off in Hollywood of all places, you know, they, they made the stock. Uh, hold that thought for just a second. Let's renew that call. I don't know. Are you still there, Zusha? Now, we may have lost that call. Let's see if we can reestablish with Zusha, because I want him to tell you about this book called American Gun Story, the true story of the AR-15. And Armalite is where they got the AR. 
I mean, there are people on the left who don't know the first thing about guns. They don't know the first thing about what's going on. They don't know how they fire or anything else. And yet they'll they'll say, well, the AR, it stands for this. It stands for Armalite. That was the name of the company that made the first ones. Uh, it, just a terrible, terrible situation that the left seems to malign this gun for no reason in particular. Zusha, are you back? I am. I'm very sorry about that. So, yeah, no, well, that's that. Yeah. No worries, but go ahead. You were saying that he made this thing light, and the other thing about the Garand was the the ammunition weighed a lot more. It was a much bigger bullet, and the two two three round or five five six round was a lot lighter, wasn't it? Yeah, that's a huge advancement, right? So the military, for a long time, as your listeners know, was in love with these big guns that fired really large rounds, and that's because they thought wars were won by marksmen. There's this real myth of the American marksman, right? And they did serve a role, but as modern guerrilla wars started popping up around the country, you know, during the Cold War, there's this threat with all these communist insurgents armed with AK-47s, which are very good for fighting in the mid-range, you know, these close-range battles. Um, there was some really key generals, particularly Willard Wyman, who realized we needed a lightweight gun that could fire lots of ammo. You know, the soldier that fires more lead wins. And so they decided, can we make, you know, can we make a gun that fires a much lighter bullet? Um, and what they, as you, your listeners know, what they did is they took a very small bullet, very small bullet, but they added a bunch of powder. So it flew, you know, high velocity, small caliber bullet, and they found that it did quite a bit of damage. And that's what they went with in, in Vietnam. Now, since then, but Armalite never really made the guns, did it? It ended up being sold to Colt. Do you cover that? That's right. So Armalite, um, you know, it's these bunch of dreamers out in Hollywood. They're coming up with all these crazy ideas. And one thing a lot of people don't know actually what AR-15 stands for, right? So uh, some people think it stands for assault rifle, which it clearly does not. Um, others even think it stands for Armalite rifle, which it actually doesn't either. Um, we were told by Stoner's daughter that it stood for Armalite Research, and 15 stood for the number, you know, they had created 14 other weapons before then. So the AR-15 was the 15th, um, but there was a lot of infighting. There was this really uh, oily guy, George Sullivan, who ran Armalite, and he tried to sort of like chisel Stoner out of his patent, try to get him to sign over the rights to his patent for a song. So there was a lot of infighting. They never got it adopted by the military, uh, so they sold the rights to Colt. But there's this famous story um, what helped them get the military to buy the AR-15, eventually renamed the M-16, you know what? You're going to have to read that story in the book by Zusha Ellenson and his co-author Cameron McWhorter. The book is called American Gun Story, the true story of the AR-15. Back in just a moment. And uh, Zusha, thank you very much. We appreciate the time. Uh, glad to get your calls next at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Exploiting your First Amendment right every single day. This is Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Always glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and I'll grab some of those calls in a moment. But I want to talk about the the economy right now, because it really is the front and center issue for an awful lot of Americans who don't follow politics all that closely, and I don't expect them to. I mean, in fact, is some of us do because it's part of what we do. Uh, but for the average family, just being able to pay the bills in an environment where mortgage rates are up more than double under Joe Biden, uh, consumer goods are not truly reflected by the CPI. Consumer goods are up about 20 percent since Joe Biden took office. Gasoline prices are up and they've taken a spike here recently as oil prices have gone to about $100 a barrel. All thanks, I think, largely thanks to Joe Biden and his actions. Well, Alfredo Ortiz is president and CEO of the Job Creators Network and a good friend of the show. Alfredo, welcome back. Well, thank you so much. And boy, you couldn't uh, you couldn't have hit it uh, like like straight on even better. I mean, it, that was exactly it. I mean, our consumers are really starting to feel feel the pain. Yeah, and and so the question is, it, does it show any signs? in the next year and a half, two years, that there's anything that, that's on the horizon that suggests it may move the other direction or even slow down? Well, you know, eventually it, it will. And the problem is and that basically means a recession. And quite frankly, it will probably be stagflation because if you look at the growth rate of the country, it's slowing down as well. Um, and you're absolutely right that we can, we can actually truly blame uh, Joe Biden uh, for all of this. Uh, and it goes back to his day one decision of attacking, basically, and declaring war on our domestic energy production. I mean, remember just a couple of years ago before Joe Biden, we were actually finally energy independent. Um, and, and we were, you know, having median incomes that were well above inflation. And now we can't even keep up with inflation. I mean, my goodness, the other day I went to go buy you know, I wanted to make myself a turkey sandwich. I went there, and it was $15 a pound for deli meat turkey. I mean, my goodness, Blarge, you can't even make yourself a turkey sandwich. No, I mean, with 15 bucks a, a pound during Trump, you'd have been making yourself a steak sandwich and probably out of tri-tip, <laughs> out, out tri right? Exactly, exactly. Well, and so, and, and, and I guess... I keep looking at this thinking, how is any of this good for America? Even if you're a hardcore Democrat, if you say, okay, we should stop getting all of the energy that America has in abundance. Thank God for that, because it's a great blessing on this country. And and what's wrong with creating hundreds of thousands? If not, I, I think we could probably create millions of jobs, new jobs, if we said, let's build pipelines, let's drill for oil and natural gas, let's find clean ways to burn coal. And I just saw, I just saw a, a, an environmentalist, but he's a conservative environmentalist, and he said, look, at the end of the day, we create, we both drill and harvest and burn natural gas about 40% cleaner uh, than the gas it's drilled for right. in, in places like Russia. And you say, so if you just said, what if America supplied some or all of the natural gas to the rest of the planet with LNG ports that would have to be built and tankers that would have to go that would create gigantic numbers of jobs in American ports. Just that difference saying we're going to supply you with the nat gas instead of Putin would make a 40 percent difference in natural gas, which Western Europe is hugely dependent on. You say 
That difference alone should make the hearts of all the tree huggers and bunny huggers uh, just sore. And instead, they say, no, we like Joe's plan to buy windmills and solar panels from China made with coal-fired electricity. I mean, Lars, I mean, it just makes zero sense. I mean, his entire domestic uh, energy uh, policy makes absolutely no sense. And to your point, I mean, we could be producing everything for the rest of the world and it would be a cleaner you know, a cleaner environment overall. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, like I said, he had to, uh, he had to appease as far left the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders of the world, right? Um, uh, and, and coming out with, you know, his uh, Green New Deal, basically, which is effectively what we've done with, uh, all the, all the different spending that we have in place now. And then, you know, he's pushing the EVs. I mean, this makes no sense as well. I mean, the EV vehicles, we're, we don't have, you know, the infrastructure to accommodate those. I mean, it takes, um, you know, and nobody's even talking about the fact that, you know, they're twice as heavy as a normal car. So, you, so they're going to wear know, roads the wear out faster, right? Exactly. And the roads the are made out of oil. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, you sit there and you just like, you have to keep shaking your head and they go, when is it going to stop, Lars? Well, and the other thing is this only got mentioned, a brief mention in the debate the other night, but I've been banging on this number for a while. If you take a look at the auto industry, for every 10 workers it takes to make an internal combustion engine car or pickup truck, it takes four workers to make the electric version. And you say, well, hold on, that's good. I said, it it may be good, except the electric version still costs $10,000 more, even though it uses far less, uh, you know, labor. But when it comes to UAW members, have any of them realized that their union bosses and the Democrats have fed them a line of garbage. They've said, hey, we're on your side, except we're going to eliminate six out of ten jobs in the automaking business. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, Lars. I kind of went in and broke into the, you know, the kind of understanding of that contract that they're looking yeah. for. Yeah. I think they actually did figure it out, and what they're trying to do is basically have pensions that will cover them for their lifetimes when they do get laid off and uh, be- because of this. How does that so, work so, financially? I mean, how in the world does, do you say we're, we're going to wipe out the industry that pays the money, but we're all going to collect pay, big paychecks when we're all retired at 42? Yeah, I, I mean, it absolutely makes no sense. I mean, you know what? I'm actually glad that Ford and all these guys are not actually caving on this because it's just ridiculous what they're asking for. I mean, at this point, I mean, first of all, I understand. I, I, I love, you know, blue collar workers and these guys work hard. But, you know, I mean. You, they, they should actually be picketing the White House because it's Biden that actually caused this kind of inflation that's really caused the issues for them and their, you know, household budget. I mean, that is really the, the, the real culprit is what Biden has been doing since day one and has really caused this inflation to spike the way it has. Well, why do you think that Joe Biden showed up on the picket line for exactly 12 minutes, spoke for 87 seconds he spoke for less than a minute and a half and then climbed back in his big internal combustion engine beast of a limousine <laughs> and went back to Air Force One that, by the way, does not win, run on wind or solar. Yeah, you know what, boy, wouldn't I, I would love for that Air Force One to be running on solar right now. 
<laughs> it wouldn't be going very far, would it? That's Alfredo Ortiz. He's president and CEO of the Job Creators Network. Alfredo, thanks so much. I appreciate the time. Thanks for joining me for Honestly Provocative Talk Radio. If you want to sound off, well, you're always welcome here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, naysayers always go to the head of the line when you call the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved Lars. republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. Now, you know that I have been in a labor union before. I didn't like it at the time. I didn't want to be in it. And in fact, in one case, even participated with my fellow workers in decertifying that union. I don't particularly care for unions today. I don't want to belong to one. But I also believe that it's your constitutional right through freedom of association and other constitutional rights like free speech uh, for you to belong to a labor union if you want to. But I'm frequently critical of what the unions do. In this case, I want you to hear about how a labor union appears to want to destroy the jobs of some of its own members and put them literally into physical danger. So to talk about that, I've invited Chip Rogers on, who's president and CEO of the American Hotel and Lodging Association. Mr. Rogers, welcome to the program. Lars, it is great to be with you. Am I overstating it when I say that what this union effort, especially in Los Angeles, is doing to striking hotel workers might actually put their own members in physical danger and even wipe out their jobs? Is that overstating it? Well, that is exactly what is happening. So you are not overstating it. Uh, The local union has a ballot measure, which they gathered signatures for, that would be on the ballot uh, next year if they don't pull it off the ballot that would require the city of Los Angeles to take homeless people and place them inside of hotels alongside of paying guests. Now, many things are going to happen if this actually goes through. One, people are going to stop going to Los Angeles. Two, which is going to cost jobs. Three, those who remain there and are serving a population that needs medical help are going to be have their, their, their own safety put in danger. And so the guests are going to be in danger. The hotel employees are going to be in danger. This is a terrible idea any way you look at it and i'd have to agree with you because whether people like it or not they i think there are people who think i'm being mean-spirited when i say that many of the people living on the streets uh, have mental problems uh they are in many cases severely antisocial. many of them are drug addicted and many of them feed those drug addictions with criminal activities put even a small population of those into a hotel let alone you know populating the entire hotel with it 
and you do exactly what you're suggesting. You ruin the hotel for everybody else who doesn't want to be around criminals or drug addiction or illegal drugs. And uh, and you probably ruin the hotel's business model as well, which means the hotel, once it's, you know, while they're being paid by the government to house these people, they may be making bank. But the minute those people are gone or the minute it becomes entirely a homeless drug addiction hotel, nobody else is going to want to go near there or there or any place near there, any of the other hotels in the area. And you think you think that's how it's going to work out? And does the union really intend for it to go that way? Boy, I, I'm having a hard time understanding what they intend at all, because I can't imagine any organization, much less a union, who would take action to put their own members in physical danger. I mean, that is the, the height of arrogance and hypocrisy to say that you're supporting your members and then you put them in physical danger. But the reality is the way the program would be set up if it's passed by the voters is that two o'clock every day, every hotel in Los Angeles would be required to call City Hall and report to City Hall how many vacancies they have and what their daily rate is. City Hall would then take vouchers based on that information and go out into the community and hand it to homeless people. And then homeless people would take those vouchers and go to hotels and check in just as if they are any other regular guest. Now, you mentioned a moment ago the, some of the problems this population has to deal with. And, and homelessness is a very serious issue that deserves a serious answer. This is, of course, not a serious answer. But on the low end, there was a, a report from Stanford University recently, not a right-wing organization by any stretch. <laughs> no yeah, more than a quarter of people that are experiencing homelessness have a chemical dependency or have some sort of mental illness that needs to be addressed. Now, if you're taking that population and putting them right next to a family who happens to be in Los Angeles on vacation, you endanger that family. And if you send a hotel worker into that room, now you're endangering the hotel worker. It's a terrible, terrible idea. Well, and Chip, I've seen other cities, including the city I live in, that have said we're going to buy an entire hotel. We're going to, you know, we're going to put entirely homeless drug addicts in the hotel. That's one thing. But this actually suggests that what from the nicest hotel down to the Motel 6 or whatever is at the bottom of the pile, uh, we're going to put a certain number of homeless people in every single hotel because the city of Los Angeles is going to say, we're going to take every single vacant room, say there are three vacant rooms or five or ten, and we're going to fill them with these, you know, drug addicts. And I guess I've made the point before, Chip, logically it strikes me, the only reason anybody is living on the streets, and they say, well, you know, because of their problems. I said, yes, and they've worn out their welcome with all of their family and all of their friends. And that takes some pretty severe antisocial behavior because most of us, we'd call our family or we'd call our friends, say, listen, I'm down on my luck. Something happened, lost my job, uh, house burned down, whatever it is. Would you put us up for a few nights? And most of us have people who have done that. I, I would imagine that most of these so-called homeless people have already run through all those options and the options are now f closed off by their their closest family and friends who say, I don't want you anywhere near me. Go somewhere else. That's the only way you end up on the streets, isn't it? Well, and under this scenario, Lars, they would then be able to go check into a hotel, um, which the average rent-paying person in Los Angeles doesn't have the opportunity to do so. But no. I think more importantly is the hotel employees are not trained for this. These people need wraparound services. You mentioned a moment ago renting out an entire hotel. That has taken place. And in all those cases, what happens is the government comes in with medical and healthcare professionals and, and sometimes law enforcement to help these people that need help. In this situation, what they're asking to do and putting them next to, to paying guests is to treat them as if they're any regular paying guest. And that's not the case. They need help. And exactly as you explained, these are people that are 
They're down on their luck. They've had a bad run. Let's help them in a legitimate way. This is not it. No, and Chip, the other thing when you said just like any other guest, except I understand if I check into a hotel with Tina and my granddaughter and we break a lamp or we steal a towel or we do we kick a hole in the sheetrock, not that we do any of those things, but if we did, I understand I'm going to pay the cost. They're going to take my credit card and charge the entire cost to me, except I assume that the homeless types are not going to be held to that same standard. They can do as much damage as they want, and there is no consequence for anybody except the hotel's owner. Well, and beyond that, Lars, you know, when you check into a hotel right now, pretty much everywhere across the country, you're required to show some sort of identification. The hotel needs to know who it is they're dealing with. Yep. Under this scenario, I can't imagine that, that folks experiencing homelessness are going to be able to have those identification cards. The second part is what happens on day two after the day one voucher runs out? Are you really going to be able to kick them out of the hotel? I mean, law enforcement should be steadfastly against this crazy idea as well. Well, and how about this, Chip? I mean, the, I've seen some hotels where they have to deal with it. And then the family you talked about earlier, they check into the hotel. And all of a sudden, Johnny and Janie, their kids, are on the floor, on the carpet. They're encountering fentanyl. They're encountering needles. They're encountering methamphetamine residue. Just think about what that would do, and nobody's going to want to stay in a hotel anywhere near Los Angeles. That is Chip Rogers. Chip, thanks very much. President and CEO of the American Hotel and Lodging Association. Ah, crazy ideas. L.A. is known for them. This one may just cost millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Just your volume. He's just that loud. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I'll get back to your phone calls and emails here in just a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Naysayers go to the head of the line. And, of course, uh, vote in our Twitter poll, at Lars Larson Show. And if you don't like Twitter like me, go to my website, LarsLarson.com. I've been looking forward to talking to Peter Navarro again. Dr. Peter Navarro, as I should call him, former assistant to President Trump. He was there from the beginning all the way to the end, director of trade and industrial policy for the White House and the author of a new book called Taking Back Trump's America, Why We Lost the White House and How We'll Win It Back. Doctor, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. You know, great great to be with you, Lars. I I remember, uh, if I've got this right, back in 2016, talking to you uh, close to the November 8th election for President Trump that he won and talking about uh, what what it meant to be a Trump Republican. And you fast forward now, this book, Taking Back Trump's America, uh, it's not really a book for me, it's a mission. We have a country and an economy that is in chaos right now. The economy is collapsing. We're fighting inflation. It's eroding wages, uh, making it impossible for people to live. 
The financial markets are being crushed. We lost literally trillions of dollars of wealth in this country. We got an invasion on our southern border. And, of course, Putin and Xi Jinping of China are roaming free to do their mischief. And it's all because elections have consequences. It's all because Pelosi, Schumer, and Biden are in charge and doing seemingly everything possibly wrong uh, for this country. So taking back Trump's America is really the blueprint and battle cry for the MAGA movement, um, not just to get Trump back in the White House in 2024, but most immediately in the next less than 40 days, get Nancy Pelosi uh, the hell out of the Speaker's chair in Congress so that we can at least stop hemorrhaging uh, all the uh, problems we're hemorrhaging now. I, I couldn't agree with you more. So tell me this. You mentioned Joe Biden being in charge. Do you think he's really calling the shots as as incompetent as he seems to many of us just watching from when on those rare occasions he shows up in front of cameras like he did and says, where's Jackie, meaning Jackie Walorski, the member of Congress who was killed in a car wreck two months ago. This is a president who doesn't remember even things like that. And he doesn't seem to be all there upstairs. So is he really calling the shots or is it Barack Obama from uh, from his Georgetown house or what? I think uh, most likely the president of this country right now is uh, Ron Klain, the uh, Biden chief of staff, and and maybe Jill with a little bit of uh, advice, God help us all, from Hunter Biden, who (laughs) Joe Biden, by the way, called the smartest person he'd ever met. Um, You you put your finger on the pulse of something. The problem here, Lars, is that Biden was with Obama for eight long years, and they trained uh, a, a large number of bureaucrats in the deep swamp uh, to learn how to effectively govern in terms of getting things done. The problem we face right now, Lars, is that everything they're getting done quickly is wrong for the American people. Everything. I mean, if you look at, if you break down kind of the, the stagflation issue, you got recession and inflation all at the same time. Um, in the Taking Back Trump's America book, I have a chapter about a memo I wrote in 2020, September, warning um, precisely of this looming stagflation crisis. Now, keep in mind, that was three years ago. Uh, and I could see coming, because of the, the breakdown of our global supply chains, this buildup of cost push. Inflation. So we've got that in spades now. And on top of that, we're overstimulating the economy with Keynesian stimulus, which is fueling inflation, um, with these trillion-dollar bills on Capitol Hill that, that are really misplaced. And the forced vax policy uh, decimated our labor markets. Everything he does. And by the way, buried the lead here. There's a great story in Taking Back Trump's America about how I worked with uh, the White House legal counsel and President Trump to seal that border down south. That border right now is a sieve. There's over 2 million illegal aliens uh, at a minimum that have come over since Biden uh, took office. And that not only puts downward pressure on, on wages and employment opportunities, for black, brown, and blue-collar Americans, it, it burdens our schools, burdens our emergency rooms, and it causes everybody's taxes to go up as we have to subsidize that, yep. that illegal immigration. So this just, I mean, look, the, 
people listening to this show, if you're angry, good. If you're frustrated, bad. Don't be frustrated. What you need to do is find a couple of races, uh, either in, in your state or around the country, uh, where they will help take back Trump's America. You know, there's, there's a Senate race in Arizona, Blake Masters. Help him Very out. Very important. Uh, Mitch McConnell of Rhino certainly isn't, but that could be the key to the majority. There's house races around the country. I love one in Iowa, three. Uh, Zach Nunn, a Republican, is running against uh, an incumbent, Sidney Axney. Axney Axney is, uh, is my mantra. You know, you could just go to somebody's website like Zach Nunn, send him a few bucks. The word is action, action, action. That's the, the culture of the Taking Back Trump's America book, and that's what I urge you listeners to do. Let me ask you about this. I'm talking to Peter Navarro, author most recently of Taking Back Trump's America, Why We Lost the White House and How We'll Win It Back. The deep state that Donald Trump talked about, the most of the mainstream media just simply denied the existence of it. But it even existed within the White House. And you identify some of the bad guys, including the president's son-in-law. Yes, uh, there's uh, the old Reagan uh, rule that personnel is policy, meaning that if a president has the wrong personnel around him uh, that doesn't uh, abide by his vision, he'll get the wrong policy. Well, that played out in spades in a Trump White House, at least early in the administration. Um, and I, I coined the, the refinement that bad personnel is not just bad policy, but bad politics. And this part of the story of taking back Trump's America is how staffers within the West Wing itself uh, created a set of strategic failures uh, that led uh, to an election which which I think should have been a landslide but was made close enough to steal. And some of the people I mentioned uh, include uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. I mean, if he had never darkened the door of the Oval, the boss might be there. Just with him alone, that guy did so much damage. But Kushner um, it, it failed on many fronts, but probably the worst mistake was how he ran the 2020 campaign. In the... Uh, Taking back Trump's America, I go back to the beautiful 2016 campaign, 20 people on an airplane, 100 people like me in the Trump Tower war room in Manhattan. Uh, every nickel counted, and we got it done. Kushner uh, was given the, the, the largest budget in a presidential election history. We, we spent more overall than Joe Biden. But as I, I relate in one chapter in Taking Back Trump's America, Kushner was like a monkey with a flamethrower burning cash. There's a great story about Peter Thiel, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, who wrote a check for $250,000 to the campaign. That's a lot of money. Well, guess what? That money got spent in January, 10 months before the election, to pay for a mere two seconds of a 30-second Super Bowl ad. I mean, it was (laughs) insane. And, And Lars... When we were like a few weeks out from election day, we had yeah. to pull our ads in key states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, uh, and Biden actually outspent us in the last two months of the election. You can't do that. And- no, you can't do that. And when the book is called Taking Back Trump's America, Why We Lost the White House and How We'll Win It Back, its author is Peter Navarro, who was there from the beginning to the end of the Trump administration. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. 
The Lars Larson Show. strong Wi-Fi signal, his voice will reach you. This is Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Like a lot of you, I'll bet you're wondering where we're headed politically in America these days. And I've drawn the sad conclusion that for whatever reason, we seem to be headed towards socialism, which inevitably leads to communism. And I don't you know, that's not just using communism as the big, uh, uh, the big bad, uh, you know, uh, bugaboo out there. It's you're saying, look. The, the whole country, a country built on capitalism, is now selling itself out to socialism, while there are countries in other parts of the world that have had up-close and personal experience with socialism and said, no, no, we don't want that at all. Well, I thought we'd talk about it with R. Emmett Terrell. He goes by Bob. He's founder and publisher of The American Spectator and author most recently, brand new book just out, How Do We Get Out of Here? Half a Century of Laughter and Mayhem at The American Spectator. Bob, welcome back to the program. Nice to be with you. Now, you were a conservative college student back in 1968, right? And and this is where you this is where the origins of the American Spectator are. That is correct. Tell me how we did get to here. I mean, how and how do we get out of here? How do we make sure that this great country built on freedom and capitalism, both of those, you know, work together hand in hand? How how do we get off this this path, this slide we seem to be on towards socialism? Well, I think we just have to say no. And uh, I think we are the majority, and I think the majority will say no if, they're, if they get a chance in this next election. Uh, but we'll have to see what they do, see what the, uh, the politicians do. The politicians don't give us the, the chance that we should have. We should have plenty of opportunities to vote against whoever we want to vote against or in favor of whoever we want to vote for. Uh, but I, uh, I'm as much in doubt of what's going to happen as you are. Hey, Bob, I realize that both of us could be uh, indicted and sent to prison for actually saying the 2020 election was terribly flawed and uh, and did not produce the result we were all told it did produce. But I, I've been saying it for a few years, so I, I guess I, I, I just have to resign myself to maybe life in a federal prison one day. But well, look, but I want to get I your act- take on Well, Go ahead. I actually was uh, headed to, to uh, prison at one point, as you might recall. Yep. But we published the Trooper Gate piece, and I've written about the Trooper Gate piece in, in my book. Uh, we... That that got the Clintons pretty riled up, and they try they cost us a million dollars at the American Spectator, but we said no to them, and we'll say no to the next uh, con artist that comes down the pike. Well, and Bob, you got to be careful because you know what happens to people who cross the Clintons. I mean, they don't just go to prison; sometimes they end up dead. Well, they do, but uh, frankly, I think what happened to the the uh, the Clintons this time or recently was that they tried to, to do too much. And they, I, and as Tom Wolf said with regard to us, 
the, the Clintons, Hillary would have been president of the United States in 2017 had the American spectator not taken her down a peg or peg or two or three. And, well, we did. And I'm very proud of that. So I wrote about it in this book, and I wrote about that and a lot of other things, too, that I think will um, give, give people a chance to laugh. You know, I was I was ta- I was uh, criticized by our lawyers for laughing at the Clintons all the way uh, through, through every bit of travail. But I had laughed at them, and we turned turned out that uh, the Clintons w- w- Clintons turned up the heat in the kitchen, and we cooked their goose. I'm talking to Bob Terrell, who's founder and publisher of The American Spectator. His new book is How Do We Get Out of Here? Half a Century of Laughter and Mayhem at the American Spectator. And, Bob, I mean, I'm a little older. You're a little older. Just for the people who aren't, uh, let's remind them that Troopergate was about Bill Clinton as governor of Arkansas using state troopers to help him secure young women for his personal appetites. And, And you may want to go beyond that. Well, you you know, in in the Trooper Gate piece uh, that that we published, uh, that really put an end to the sexual revolution. It was Tom Wolfe said the most historic piece of the twenty first century, I guess, and, and it was. Uh, we we were the people that brought Bill up short, and we and I'm very proud of that. I want to ask you, Bob, what, what should we make of the, the fact that right now we've got the son of a president of the United States who apparently has committed crimes right in front of God and everybody, gun crimes, tax crimes, and yet the, the apparatus of the federal government has protected him not only when his dad was in office as vice president and is in office as president, but even in between the apparatus of government has protected him. Is there any, under, any way to really understand what's going on there? Yes, just look at the uh, look at Biden, look at the Biden ch- child, and you see people that were paid off time and time again, and they've got to be stopped. I think they will be stopped. I'm a pes- I'm not a pessimist. I'm an optimist. Well, I'm an optimist as well, and I'm glad to see that you know Senator Menendez from New Jersey has now been indicted. But it, it almost starts to read like some Babylon Bee story. Sorry to mention the competition, although they don't directly compete with the American Spectator. But they say, yeah, we ra- he was on trial six years ago, manages to beat that rap. Now he's on trial. Now he's going to be on trial again. He's indicted and they raid his house and they find stacks of gold bars, stacks of cash, all kinds of other things. Uh, I mean, it sounds like these people weren't even trying real hard to hide their crimes. Well, they... they- the surprising thing to me is how proud these people are and how vain they are and how they'll do anything and they don't think they're going to get caught. I mean, if I had gotten caught, I would followed him when he was arrested, when he was appearing before a, a judge six years ago, and, and, I, and he got off. I didn't think he should, but he got off. And the fact that he tried the same stunt once again, it shows you how vain these politicians are and they've really got to be stopped and we will stop them i think we've got look at that field of of people of people running for, 
for the president for the Democrat for the Republican nomination. There's there are really a terrific group of people. Yeah, they are. And, and Bob, I'm a Trump part, Bob. That, I'm a Trump partisan. But I point that out to people. I say, where's the bench for the Democrats? And you say, well, they've got Kamala and they've got they've got Gavin Newsom. And I said, and that's it. I say, you look on the Republican side. And while I might not personally favor them this time, you can look at a bunch of them and say they're all great candidates who might well be president. Not today, but maybe in five years. Yeah, I do agree with you. And in my chapter on on Donald Trump is, I think, um, correct. I think Donald Trump took too many punches, and he he should have never. I mean, I you know I was for him in in 2016. I was for him before that, Uh, but and he was a wonderful candidate, and he was did a wonderful wonderful things as president of the United States. But he took too many punches, and that's what worries me about him. He's taken too many punches. Well, I got to tell you something. I admire anybody who's willing to take the punches, just like you, facing the possibility of federal prison, and say, no, I'm going to stick with it, and I'm going to be an optimist as well. Bob Terrell, R. Emmett Terrell, founder and publisher of The American Spectator, author most recently, a brand new book just out. How do we get out of here? Half a century of laughter and mayhem at The American Spectator. Back in a moment, we'll get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Actually, want to be at. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to bring you up to date on where we stand. There is a memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. It is a memorial to Confederate soldiers. And if you say, well, why do we have a memorial like that? Well, because there are Confederate soldiers who are buried at Arlington, along with soldiers who have died in the line of duty of their country uh, for the last 150 years or so. Uh, but they, there were both Union and Confederate soldiers buried there. There is, in fact, an entire section of Arlington that is set aside for the graves of Confederate soldiers. And there's been an effort. In fact, they had moved the equipment into place to begin the dismantling of that memorial today. Thank God a judge has issued an order saying we're going to put that on hold for right now until we hear this issue in court. Let me get to the other details of that in just a moment. But I'm really curious uh, to take this naysayer, and we always put naysayers first. Hey, JC, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Uh, yes, Lars. Uh, thank you for always taking my call. Hey, um, um, I know you've heard probably Trump's speeches probably the last couple of months, but the one of the key things of his speech is um, – the phrase that he keeps bringing up is that the uh, illegals that are crossing are poisoning the blood of our country. To a large extent, I would agree with him. And it's not about genetics. It's about the fact that when people come into our country illegally, criminally, uh, and then they want to work illegally, violating the law, criminals, 
uh, and then they want to do other things and they disproportionately get involved in violent crime against Americans, I think that does poison our society. Would you agree? Well, yes, I totally agree with you, but but he's advocating for these illegals to have sex pretty much with um, either the probably the natives that were here way before the white people, right? Well, hold on. He's, he's advocating for illegal aliens to have sex with who? Well, how, how else would you poison the blood, Lars? Well, there are a lot of ways, depending on how you take the metaphor. Exactly, because, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. How did he mean it? He meant it in a de- derogatory way. He did. Well, I, I would be derogatory you, toward you, people. You agree, come, right? Hold you on. Let me finish, JC. Okay. I let you finish. Okay. I would agree. Uh, I don't have any problem with being. I don't have any problem done. with being derogatory toward people who invade our country, break our laws, work illegally, and then at this point are being greeted, thanks to Joe Biden, with a welcome that says, "Hey, you're here." Here's several thousand dollars to get you started. Here's an airplane ticket or a bus ticket anywhere you want to go in America. Do you think I have any problem being derogatory toward that group? Uh, Lars, how many illegals do you know? Anybody? How many do I know? None that I know of because. Exactly. Exactly. They're not here illegally, Lars. They're they've been here with. Their proper paperwork, Lars. No, no, JC, JC, are you telling me? Are you telling me that when Border Patrol says we've had around nine million people illegally cross into America, that there aren't they any are here? Back, they are captured and given back to Mexico, and then no, they they're not. For, yes, they. Oh, Lars, come on, Lars. Hold on, I know Jer- you're JC. Guy, Lars. I know you're can you tell me then what is Eric Adams complaining how many about? You know, Lars. And how many it's not about who I know, J.C. It's not even about who you know. But when the mayor of New York City says our country is being flooded, we, he calls them migrants. I don't consider them migrants. But uh, but when he says his, his city is being flooded with migrants that are costing the city billions of dollars, and you just want to say, well, if I don't know one and you don't know one, then they must not be here at all. J.C., that's that's ignoring reality. Let's go to Jerry. Hey, Jerry, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? You want to talk about the Confederate monument? Yes, uh, Lars. When I was in the Army uh, during the bicentennial, I was assigned as a guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Wow, that's and, quite an honor. Well, thank you. Thank you. One of the things that I learned while there was that Arlington came about uh General Lee's family owned that property, and at the time when it was time to pay taxes, you had to do it in person. And they, the woman that, uh, the widow, I guess, that uh, was left, couldn't pay the taxes in person. So a guy, Quartermaster General Miggs, foreclosed on the property, and they turned it into a cemetery, and as the ultimate insult, it was to bury Union soldiers on. And uh, that's kind of how Arlington came into existence. So you kind of hate to see that Confederate mm, memorial. Well, I, 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 can I, I hate to throw facts in the way of a really good story, but, Jerry, I've learned over the years that when a story sounds too good to be true, it's like deals. Arlington Cemetery is built on plantation land that was belong, belonged to George Washington Park Custis. Custis was the grandson of Martha Washington and the step-grandson of President George Washington. So that detail is wrong. I do know that Miggs, and it was Brigadier General Montgomery Miggs, who was the quartermaster of the U.S. Army, he was asked, what should we do with these bodies? 
um, and they took bodies within 35 miles of Washington, D.C., and they, they knew that they were bodies of both Confederate and Union soldiers, and they were buried there. In fact, to this day, they don't know for sure which bodies were buried uh, that were Union or Confederate. Since then, there have been other Confederate soldier bodies buried at Arlington, and there is an entire section. But would you agree that if there was a monument, and it was put up about 110 years ago, it was the early 1900s, they put up the the monument, not to any one of the Confederate leaders, but to the Confederate soldiers who died uh, during the Civil War. Is there any reason to object to having a memorial there to the Confederate soldiers who died? No, no. And Custis married a Lee, though. So the house there is the Custis Lee Mansion. It's on oh, the okay. Top of the hill so that that's where over. the connection comes in. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Fair correction. Yes. So, so yes. then, what should we say to these people who say we have to tear this thing down? I would say, uh, no, we don't. That that's a memorial to they're all Americans. Uh, we had different points of view. Yep. But uh, that we're all Americans, and that's to remember our history that seems to be trying to be destroyed and they want to they want to reject that history jerry thanks a lot i got about a minute before the break larry what's on your mind today make it quick uh, hi i was calling in response to that jc's comments on yeah. trump yeah i watched the rally and he he was not being derogatory towards anyone i watched the mainstream media this morning and they chopped it up so bad to make their narrative, uh, it wasn't anywhere near what President Trump was saying. Yeah, I, I can read so. the whole quote. It's they let, I think the real number is 15 or 16 million, not the nine I've been quoting. When they do that, we've got a lot of work to do. They're poisoning the gut, the blood of our country, is what Trump said at that rally in New Hampshire. And that's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just in the three or four countries we think of. Larry, I appreciate the call. You've got the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.